0: Welcome to Book Choice on Fine Music Radio, the only show on South African radio that offers you an hour-long extravaganza of books with me, your host, Paige Nick. I'm very much looking forward to keeping you in good book company for the next hour. For today's show, we've got a lovely varied mix of reviews and interviews of both fiction and non-fiction. We've been really mindful to try to create a show that has options for everyone on your festive season gifting list, as well as for yourself. In fact, we're so jam-crammed that I barely have time to drop any teasers. Short of saying, we bring you some horror, some young adult fiction, some literary fiction, some non-fiction. Vanessa Levenstein chats about the latest from Kate Atkinson, which is one of my top favorite reads of the year so far. We also have an Agatha Christie book, a Jeffrey Archer book, we have a nature book, more nonfiction, and a book called Bounce on how to raise resilient kids in the world today. Then ultimately, we wrap up the show with an interview with one of my favorite South African authors, Andrew Brown, and that's about his latest. It's called The Bitterness of Olives. If you've never read this author before, he is a must read. I haven't read this one yet, which is nonfiction, but of his earlier works, Good Cop, Bad Cop is a standout novel for me. In this book, as a police reservist in real life, Brown was able to write with huge clarity and empathy about his experiences. He's a lawyer too in real life, and all his books are sensitive, thoughtful, and immaculately well-written. So that's an interview I'm very much looking forward to. We're going to start the show with two book bites, starting off with Vanessa Levenstein, who read Girls of Little Hope by Sam Beck-Bessinger and Dale Halverson. I've read this book and enjoyed it despite the fact that horror isn't really my regular fare, And it did have all that gruesome horror that horror lovers really look for.
1: Remember Twin Peaks? Girls of Little Hope by Sam Beck Bessinger and Dale Halvorsen has some of those vibes. That was the sentence that Page Nick wrote on the Good Book Appreciation Society, and she got me at the second and third word, Twin Peaks. Paige was spot on because what made Twin Peaks brilliant was that there was so much else going on beneath the layers. Girls of Little Hope is set in a fictitious town called Little Hope. How's that for a cheery start? Three girls' best friends go into the woods, and only two return, covered in blood and confused. Now, here's what I loved about the book. The genre is horror, but the characters are real people who are flawed and complex, which is clever, because it makes the horror elements more believable. The authors explore dualities. You can be a loving yet messed up parent, like Cat's mother. Cat is the girl who didn't return from the woods, and her mother, Mary Beth's parenting ethos, is questionable. Mary Beth doled her daughter up for beauty pageants, yet, at the same time, was prepared to sacrifice everything in the hope of finding her daughter. The girls who did come back are Ray and Donna. Ray's parents have the veneer of respectability. And like any good David Lynch film, what lies beneath the surface is toxic. And then you have Donna, whose mother abandoned her. And her single father navigates raising a teenage daughter with care and trust. I really liked him. At the center of the narrative is Ronnie Gaskins, the outcast, a murderer, a mystery person. The writers are really clever. You don't see the twists and turns coming but I was left after it with a lingering niggling feeling. How many people have I judged and actually know nothing about and can't even begin to understand their truth? I love a book that is more than it is and Girls of Little Hope is just that exploring friendship adolescence and the other and on a bad day you can't relate to feeling a little bit like a monster.
0: And now a switch of pace as we turn to Rachel van der Feife, our resident grade 9 reviewer, here to tell us about young adult fiction she's been reading. It's called When Women Were Dragons by Kelly Barnhill. So if there are young adults in your life, take a listen. Christmas is coming and this might make the perfect gift. Also, I want to add a quick note of luck to Rachel, who managed to read and review for us despite the fact that she's knee deep in school exams right now. Good luck from all of us, Rachel.
2: When Women Were Dragons is a brilliant new fantasy by Kelly Barnhill. Set in 1950s America, the book explores a world in which women can spontaneously transform into dragons. The story is told from the perspective of Alex Green growing up in Wisconsin. In 1955, hundreds of thousands of women around the country transform in an event dubbed the Mass Dragoning. Alex is left behind. So is her mother. But her Aunt Marla is one of the many women who take the skies, leaving behind their life and a mysteriously missing husband. Unwilling to face reality, the country goes into complete denial and no one will talk about what happened. Best to forget that also. But Alex remembers and no matter how hard she tries, she can't forget. I love the book so much and it's probably one of the best books I've read this year. I thought it was a really great concept that was well executed and the style of writing was excellent. It's mainly told in first person by Alex, but the chapters are interspersed with fictional documents and reports that link to all the story topics, which I really liked. It completely gripped me. And from the moment I started reading it, I just could not put it down. It was so great. For anyone who needs a reminder, the book is When Woman Dragons by Kelly Barnhill and is published by Hockey Books.
0: Welcome back to Book Choice on Fine Music Radio, sponsored by Exclusive Books, with me, your host, Paige Nick. That song was Fragile by Charles Duplessis and Zanta Hofmeier. Next up, more fiction, starting with Shirley Guler, who brings us two reviews, starting with Agatha Christie's Halloween Party and following her twofer up with the latest by Jeffrey Archer called Traitor's Gate. It's a story within a story. Agatha Christie's
3: Halloween Party is a slight holiday read, light, yet full of meaningful meanderings and musings, and of course, multiple red herrings and murders. Not just the murder of a girl who said she saw one murder, but, as the end comes into focus, many of them. On its initial publication in 1969, it was seen as a disappointment, written by an aging Mrs. Christie. But tastes change and is now seen by some as memorable and even intriguing. It's a potted version of English rural society and its class structures, the infinite belief in the superiority of some with a disparaging belief that other countries or cultures or civilizations must emulate their betters. I enjoy the observations of Monsieur Poirot, such as the passing discussion on grey hair. I attend to that with a bottle. There's no need to appear in public with grey hair unless you wish to do so. He's bored, really bored, and looking for something to fill the hours. When his friend, the agitated and scatty mystery writer Ariadne Oliver, she of the original mind, comes to visit. Of course there are questions and of course the answers come in the last few pages. Did the young Joyce see the murder? Did the foreign au pair forge a codicil to the will and where is she now? I have to say that ultimately I was happy to dispatch this and move on to Geoffrey Archer. Now, the name Archer will make some hackles rise, but divorce the storyteller from the sleaze of his actions and lift your eyes to the Tower of London as a setting for a theft. This will put the compelling Netflix winner, The Money Heist at the Royal Mint in Madrid, to shame. In Trader's Gate, there is a story within a story, and Archer, the ultimate insider, has intimate knowledge of everything from dining at the Savoy to coffee in prison and the law courts and how the other half live. It's a revenge story, with seedy, flawed characters in it for a quick but risky buck, and then the people with integrity, kids with inquiring minds, and even the side bit of romance. Revenge for a previous book's plot, when the Metropolitan Police's William Warwick and Ross Hogan closed the jail gates on Miles Faulkner, and then revenge for the other plot, a plan to exchange. Well, that would be giving the first swap away. The second swindle swap is the main theme. Stealing the crown jewels, not for their value, but to seek the downfall of Faulkner's nemesis. Will it work? Nothing is left to chance. And there is only one chance to nick the jewels when they are collected under the highest security precautions for their annual journey to the palace and then Whitehall for the Queen's speech. And yes, this is set 30 years ago when Queen and consort were people of the hour. No prizes for guessing who will come out on top in this exchange of the real for the replica and vice versa, because there has to be another book in the Warwick series sometime, if not soon. Maybe someone who lives in London and is familiar with every traffic light could, but I could not fault Archer for detail. The traffic routes, the parking lots, the knowledge of how the tower is manned, the passwords and the roles each person plays, including the Lord Chamberlain and the governor of the tower. People were beheaded in the past, of course, for slipping up. In this game of vindication, the vindicator must always be one step ahead of the other. And the planning is meticulous. Of course, you know who will come out on top, but it is nail-biting, especially during that golden hour, those critical 60 minutes immediately after the crime, when the trail is hot and before the odds of solving the crime turn negative. Archer does know how to spin yarns, and this is a perfect summer and holiday afternoon read.
0: And now on to Beverly Rose Miller, who read a book I've also recently finished. It's called The Ghost of Sam Webster, and it's by Craig Higginson. I have to say, this book has one of the most compelling opening chapters I have ever read.
4: I'm tempted to make this the shortest review you'll ever hear on 5 Music Radio. Buy this book, The Ghost of Sam Webster by Craig Higginson, and relish it. It is a rare gem. On the other hand, you'll probably want to know a little more. So, the place of battle at Isandwana in 1879 remains the site of ghostly memories, of massacre, of triumph for the Zulus and humiliating defeat for the British, who lost their first invasion of Zululand against a foe equipped with vastly inferior weapons. More than a century after Isandwana, the body of a young woman is found rolling in the nearby Buffalo River, The daughter of the Webster's luxury lodge on this historic site is missing, is the body hers. Difficult to tell, as no sooner has it been spotted than it is swept away by the streaming waters. A friend of the family and a writer, Daniel Hawthorne, decides to visit these Webster friends. As his exploration of both the tragic loss of Sam and the history of the battleground draws him in, the roiling, complicated stories of love and passion, shame, betrayals and courage begin to converge in unexpected and shocking resolutions. At the scene of the famous bloody battle was young British Lieutenant Charles Hawthorne, ill-prepared on so many levels for the fight of his life and those men he commanded against a fierce, dedicated Zulu army. Charles was a lepidopterist, the spotter and collector of many butterflies and this book is a cage of delicious descriptions of the many beauties he finds along the way, riding into war to the complete disgust of his superior officer with a butterfly net and a hidden secret. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, or rather the fancy lodge, all is not well in paradise. The Webster marriage is threadbare. Bruce Webster is ageing and dying. His wife is drinking and bonking the imported help. "'bright young men, imported to help the tourists feel at ease, "'not to mention satisfying the misses "'Something quite edible in that,' thinks Daniel the writer, "'as indeed there is in the dying patriarch's grip on his farm, "'contested territory in a land war with modern Zulus. "'Sam, or her body, has not yet reappeared. "'The British lieutenant who survived the onslaught at Isandlwana "'is tainted because of his affection for a fellow soldier.' Nothing is quite what it seems, even as the lion-shaped mountain at this legendary site sits impassively, waiting for these human dramas to play out and disappear, as, at some stage, everyone and everything inevitably does. Craig is a celebrated writer. His earlier novels include The Landscape Painter and The Dream House. This, in my opinion, is his best. He uses a curious but highly effective literary device of isolating single sentences hanging in the text, which amplify not only the story but also the mood. One I particularly liked was, some people are built like churches. The text continues, they walk through the world like moving churches where people come to dwell. They provide cool, quiet places away from the noise. You can dwell with them in tranquility. I was lucky enough to live with somebody like this, so perhaps it is why it remains with me. But there were many others, and each time I stopped to reread and paused for thought. I think this is a marvelous book, which will remain with all who read it. Very highly recommended.
0: I'm so glad you liked it as much as I did, Bev. Uh, speaking of books I liked, next up, actually, speaking of books I loved, Next up, Vanessa Levenstein joins us again to tell us about a book I've also already read. It's called Normal Rules Don't Apply. It's by Kate Atkinson. I have to tell you, this book is easily in my top five books this year. I love, 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 loved it. Okay, but let me not steal too much of Vanessa's thunder. Let me hand over to her so she can also tell you how much she loved it. This book is seriously Brilliant. Go on. You won't be disappointed.
1: I was discussing the interpretation of a school set work with my son, and he said, aren't we just making things up? Is there anything to say that white walls mean anything more than they are just white walls? I pondered this while reading Kate Atkinson's collection of short stories, Normal Rules Don't Apply. And yet, if ever there was a text that called out for deconstruction, pencil marks in the margins, and slim, pointy post-it stickers on pages, it would be this one. The book is divided into 11 short stories, which are loosely interlinked. Each chapter is a standalone, and at the same time, part of a greater whole, the novel. Only a seriously good writer could pull this off. Chapter 1, The Void, seems reflective and prophetic for five minutes a day darkness rolled over the land, leaving behind a trail of dead people. No, this isn't a COVID metaphor, as this particular story had been written pre-COVID. Yet as we watch the horrifying images of Warnfold, her words do seem chillingly apt. On the television, newsreaders and pundits were wallowing in the apocalypse, the end of civilization as we know it. Atkinson tosses around fatalities like breadcrumbs. Who will live? Who will die? Who is in charge? The title gives us a clue. Normal rules don't apply. When the creator of the world, a man, has messed things up, he gives his sister a shot at running the show. If this was a meme, it would read, Girl Power, yet she's far too good an author to pander to her reader's expectations. Chapter 2 introduces Franklin, who weaves through the stories and also reveals some valuable insights as to the author's intentions. Franklin had imagined himself holding forth airily at some literary do in the future, a text based on non-linear dynamics, a Borgisen exploration of parallel worlds. Parallel worlds are what Atkinson does so well. And this is the exciting part, where fairy tales overlap into the real world, where endings shift where names are divulged to reveal truths and where Kitty is more than a fluffy feline. In Chapter 3, a dead woman slips into a pastoral life and Chapter 4 sees the beginning of an archetypal story about a queen who longs for a child. True to form, she meets a witch whose precious gift comes with a brutal disclaimer. A recurrent theme is the randomness of it all, life, death and who we meet along the way in this messy mix. The author challenges perceptions about an immaculate conception in Chapter 4 and plays with the ideas of omnipotence in Chapter 5, where a tyrannical ruler is a child, her subjects, her toys. Atkinson chooses her clues carefully. Notice the medieval dogs' names and Falstaff in Chapter 5. Are we in control or mere victims of fate? In the second last chapter, we return to the end of the world, yet with none of the Wagnerian drama of a faustian opera. Rather, the author seems to be having fun with the very deconstruction of her own text. Was it going to be like a poor woman's Groundhog Day or a Netflix drama about parallel worlds that starts off promising but is eaten by its own metafictional self? And in the last chapter, Kate Atkinson deliberately leaves words floating. I read this book twice, the first time for pure enjoyment, and the second time I tried to fit together the puzzle pieces. However, if you're looking for a complete picture, this isn't it. Because between a talking horse, a blood-red moon, a soap opera, royalty and kitty, things both fit and crack. In response to my son's question, there isn't a definitive interpretation of a text, and that is the joy of literature, as opposed to a science subject. Because with books, especially good books, there is no right or wrong way of experiencing them, because normal rules don't apply.
0: That was Sway by Crystal Burkholz here on Fine Music Radio, and you're listening to Book Choice, sponsored by Exclusive Books. With me, your happy book-loving host, Paige Nick. We welcome Melbourne Minard to the show to review of Fathers and Fugitives by S.J. Nordair.
5: In an echo of J.M. Kutsi's mantra that a novel or story need not be fixed in one language, the smart young South African writer S.J. Nodiz has published just about all of his fiction, two short story anthologies and a novel called The Third Reel in Afrikaans and English simultaneously. Or for the better, because his voice is so vividly unique, his narrative so alternative, intriguing and pushy, that the widest audience deserves admission. It is, as the title says, about sons and their fathers and their personal flights from and to one another – And the reasons are what are embedded in such a particular relationship and challenged by issues of social status, sexuality, and in this country, all the uncertain political undertones of the past and the present. Central is Daniel, a writer, and this is important, initially adrift between Cape Town and London, both in his career as journalist and relationship with his dying father. He's not a poor writer. He's informed and yet the world does not sit well with him. In an odd meeting with two Serbian strangers at the Tate Gallery in London, triggers an adventure that shocks him out of his bubble, sucks him into a world of uneasy yet important relationships and self-discovery. In the first chapter, the Serbians lures him into overstepping the confines of his private gay comfort and life with horrifying conclusion in a very foreign land, In the second, he returns to take care of his father in his dying days. In the third chapter, he finds out about his father's bequest has an odd condition, that he visits a distant cousin, Theo, on a family farm in the Free State. Here, in a remarkable flip of the novel's plot, Daniel encounters the truth of the new South Africa, where the roles have switched. The Adventures of Daniel, in a manner of speaking, takes him and Theo to Japan, where a boy from the now black farm is to undergo an alternative treatment for cancer. It's a trip that changes the cousins' lives forever, and they settle on the farm in Sarmate. Theirs becomes a simple life, distant from the world's capitals. A farm baby becomes their care and obsession. Then a hippie hitchhiker, Hein, enters this world, upsetting the order as he kidnaps the child. The drama unfolds in an inevitable sadness as the theme of father-son gets another twist. In the final chapter, much later, Daniel revisits as an old man. This was and is his life. S.J. Jane controls the poetic waves of his story, really stories, with a deft hand, there is mystery, sex, passion and melancholy, and there are elements of thrilling danger, but also piercing views of human existence. Our Fathers and Fugitives is a novel for our times. It's Booker Prize stuff. The moment I swept through the enigmatic scenarios in the Afrikaans text, I immediately delved into Michiel Haynes' finely chiseled English version. Indeed, pure, joyful readings.
0: Next, Mark Falconer joins us on Book Choice. Mark is an educator with years of experience, and he's a big friend to the show. Today, he's joining us to weigh in on a book called Bounce by Naomi Holt, which is about how to raise resilient kids, a useful subject in this day and age. Bounce
6: by Naomi Holt. Parenting books are often filled with sanctimonious, holier-than-thou, or overly theoretical turgid nonsense, which for the most bright-thinking parents is about the last resource they need and adds insult to the injury of dealing with their much-loved but sometimes disagreeable and sometimes almost feral child. But Bounce is not such a book. Bless Naomi Holt. Psychologist, mom and wife. At the bottom of the cover page are the words, the simple and effective guide to parenting that you were not expecting. This could have continued, should have continued, but we're hoping for. Naomi's approach is simple, sensible and clear and never patronizing and never overwritten. Her ideas are thoughtfully presented with quotes and illustrations and diagrams that she manages without giving the impression of writing a school textbook with their sometimes falsely manufactured jollity, Naomi's lightness of touch is pitch perfect and entirely convincing because it has the ring of hard-won experience and unalloyed authenticity. She embraces the uncertainty and the messiness of bringing up children, and she manages to be readable and to be both informative and inspiring at the same time. And that's no mean feat when one is discussing, for example, the complexity of epigenetics. It is a rare talent to collate so much information ranging from Balbi and Gabor Maté who's always worth paying attention to, to Winnie the Pooh. After this introduction, Naomi moves on to 10 parenting attributes. Spoiler alert, it's largely about relationships, each one of which makes sense and are sane and rational and unfailingly kind. For example, be who you want your child to be, but also care for yourself. And while all these pointers will unquestionably make for a wonderful parent, they are also the building blocks for all function and productive human beings. The chapter on Carol Dweck's growth mindset, for example, can make all the difference in the world to how a young child or a young adult sees the world and their place in it. And Naomi competently and usefully condenses a lot of information into a very short summary with functional steps to help parents make sense of this really profound parenting advice. Throughout the book, Naomi refers to her own experiences as a parent. Her advice and wisdom, her clarity of thought, and her civilized and containing engagement are inspiring and make for a better world filled with self-regulating children with their sensitively informed parents. I think all parents should receive Naomi's book on their way out of the maternity ward. It may be true that children don't come with a manual, but Naomi's book will do very well until one does become available. Bounce by Naomi Holt is published by Pan MacMillan.
0: Thank you, Mark. We look forward to having you back on the show soon. And now from nurture to nature, we turn to John Hanks with a book called Southern African Moths and their Caterpillars, newly published by Penguin Random House. Hello,
7: John. Strake Nature, an imprint of Penguin Random House, South Africa, has built up a well-deserved reputation for publishing fuel guides of Southern Africa's exceptionally rich biological diversity. Their latest title, Southern African Moths and Their Caterpillars, is in a class of its own, with top-quality photographs and distribution maps of more than 1,500 moths, selected from over 10,000 species of moths that are to be found in the region. The book focuses on those that are most abundant, conspicuous, or unusual, with informative text where relevant on their ecological and economic importance. A topic which includes the role of moths as pollinators, as food sources for other animals, and with some species, such as the Mapani caterpillar, notable for their destructive defoliation during periods of extreme drought. A ten-page introduction sets the scene for the 433 pages of guides to identifying the surprisingly spectacular variation in colour and morphology of adult moths and their caterpillars. Now, if you thought that moths are drab in colour and wing shape, then I can guarantee that you will be amazed at the extraordinary and unusual diversity patterns superbly photographed here. The caterpillars are equally spectacular and diverse in colour, shape and form. Most of them have cylindrical bodies with a hard-held capsule, with two groups of simple eyes and a pair of strong biting mandibles, followed by three thoracic limb-bearing segments and ten abdominal segments, some with pro-legs or false legs and a strong clasper on the last segment. The important point made in the introduction on why caterpillars are such a valuable component of any field guide is that the caterpillar phase of the life cycle typically lasts from a few weeks to a few months, but can vary considerably within a species. When food resources are very scarce, caterpillars may take more than a year to develop fully. With the extreme being those species that bore into wood, which is a particularly poor quality source of food, where it can take up to eight years to reach maturity. In complete contrast, the adult phase is so much shorter, with many adult moths having non-functional mouthparts living only long enough to find a mate and lay eggs. In southern Africa, moth emergent is mainly synchronized with rainfall, a useful additional clue to identification. This field guide is a very special production, and I must congratulate the three authors, Herman Stauder, Mike Picker, and Charles Griffins, for opening our eyes to a component of the order Lepidoptera, which includes both moths and butterflies, that I guarantee will have you turning the pages to marvel at the photographs of the remarkable and unexpected variation in the wings of adults and the colour and adaptations of the larval forms. I have no hesitation in giving this book my strongest possible recommendation as a must-have reference to all our listeners who are nature lovers and gardeners too. The title again, Southern African Moths and Their Caterpillars, it's published by Straight Nature and you can get a copy for 550 rand.
8: It's a little bit funny This feeling inside I'm not one of those who can easily
9: hide
8: I don't have much money yeah, but boy, if house where we both could live.
0: We've just been vibing along to Your Song by Louise Howlett here on Fine Music Radio, where we're knee-deep in our latest episode of Book Choice, sponsored by Exclusive Books. All the music in today's show was selected by Mzu Maketa. Thank you, Mzu. Right now, on to the interviews. We have two interviews coming up on today's show. The first is with Twanji Kalula, who joins us to chat to Nikki Munitz about her book, Fraud. Welcome to the show to you
10: both. Like millions of people around the world, I am obsessed with white collar crime. I binge loads of books, podcasts, and TV shows about it. I recently devoured Nikki Minitz's debut memoir, Fraud How Prison Set Me Free, basically in one sitting. It's fast paced and it's fascinating, and I'm lucky to have her in studio with me. So without any spoilers, can you please tell us what your memoir is about?
11: Sure, thank you for having me. The memoir is a process of moving from darkness into light, away from a heroin addiction and toxic relationships into a space of authenticity and hope um, and providing hope to others.
10: And your life story is pretty unusual as well, because you kind of, you know, have a rough childhood You develop an addiction later in life, um, commit some white-collar fraud to support that addiction, end up in prison while you've kind of reformed your life, um, and you needed help putting the story together. And one of the things that really fascinated me about this book was that you collaborated with your good friend Alka Cohen, and many memoirists and their publishers are quite reluctant to talk about the role of ghostwriting, but it was really important for you. Um, Why was it important for her to help you tell that story?
11: I have begged Alka for the last 18 years to tell this story for me. And the reason I begged her is because she's just an incredible writer. um, And she's an incredible friend. And she's walked a very long road with me since we were 14. And I'm a speaker. She's a writer. And together we were able to really bring a story that I believe needed to be told to life.
10: Um, And what was your writing process? Because it must be quite a fascinating thing. I mean, you both obviously remember everything differently, first of all. Mm. But then... You can hear your voice coming through in the text. So it must have been fascinating. Hugely.
11: Well, first of all, Elka and I had done a writing course together and, and there were snippets that I had written. So she really got my voice coming through in those stories. But also Elka has this incredible ability to translate what I am saying um, into words on paper. And, and she really almost felt like I had uh, possessed her to an extent and I really came through in that book. She, she managed to put that perfectly.
10: I can imagine that it must have been quite all consuming for her as well, I think, um, in terms of working it. And in terms of back and forth, where you, you, you note that you were sending voice notes, so it was written, I mean, it must have been quite a consuming process over the five months that you took to write it. And what I really enjoyed was that um, stories about white collar crime often focus on the greed element and they often look at Ponzi schemes and large scale schemes. But the book does a brilliant job of really humanizing the perpetrator of it. And it's not about fraud, actually, or about prison for that matter. It's really about parental neglect and addiction and abuse and the yearning that we all have to kind of feel loved and accepted um, why is it important for you to share this story? I mean, your life is drastically different from that point. You could have moved on and said nothing. Why is it important to put it all out there?
11: Thank you for summarizing it so well. The reason it became so important is because each of us live in this our own self-imposed prison of some sort. And for me, yes, it was the physical prison, but I also had my own internal prison. And the book, each part of the book people can relate to, whether it's about parenting, whether it's about a relationship, whether it's about being trapped in some type of self-destructive behavior um, and just feeling disempowered in life. And this was an opportunity to show how to break free from that. And no matter what has taken hold, what darkness is in place, uh, this was an opportunity to be able to shed that and, and manifest the light in one's life.
10: And you've had the opportunity to kind of travel quite a bit and talk to lots of different audiences. Um, and I'm sure many people who don't know your story about the book. Have you been surprised by how it has been received?
11: Well, you know, I realize that as South Africans, we actually really open <laughs> So when I've traveled through Europe and I've like spoken about the book there, people are quite shocked that I reveal so much about my life, particularly working in the therapeutic space. A lot of like therapists are quite closed about their own personal stories. Um, And for me, I think it's really important that I am human um, and that I do allow my clients to know that I also have a story and that I'm not talking nonsense when I say there's hope at the end of it, um, because that's really what I'm selling to my clients when I'm working with them.
10: Um, and one of the things I often remember um, is that memoirists are told to write as though everyone around you is dead but realistically, you know, you've got children to think about and relatives to think about How did that kind of influence how honest you wanted to be as you put this down?
12: Quite prophetic, although I think that the Israelis and the Palestinians are used to seeing the mushroom clouds yeah. But was it also your Judaism that prompted this?
13: I think that If I wasn't Jewish, I probably wouldn't have written it. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that one of the debates we have had, I'm sure you and I have had it, and I've had Mm. it with so many people on various panels, whose story can we tell? Yes. Um, Are we allowed to tell the story of strangers? Exactly, I think we are, so long as we tell them with integrity. But would I be telling a story set in Palestine if I was not Jewish and didn't have Mm -hmm. a connection to the Jewish community? No, I think... Probably not. So it definitely plays a role in the reason for the book.
12: Mm-hmm. I, I think you've been incredibly objective, but mm. you've also been realistic. And you, you've achieved that balance that is so very difficult to achieve in a situation like this. But how did you go about the research? I mean, I walked those streets of Gaza City mm. with you, I sucked in that dust. It, it was horrific. You know, just the, the way people are living. I mean, they call it the largest open-air prison in yeah, the world. You put, you put that in your book. How did you go about the research?
13: So I tried to get into Gaza on numerous occasions without success. Um, I, in fact, spent time at Erez Crossing, which is the only crossing between mm-hmm. Israel and Gaza.
12: That's where they all um, go into work and Yes, the
13: with their permits. Mm-hmm. Um, and I presented my South African passport uh, to the military and said, Hi, I've come to see Gaza. I believe you have very nice beaches. And I was whisked off into a small room and various <laughs> people with various epaulettes on their shoulders came to talk to me to try and understand who I was and what I was up to. Mm-hmm. And then at one point, a very nice captain came to speak to me and said, look, we're having some troubles in Gaza at the moment. And of course, that's the wrong thing to say to a South African. Absolutely. Goes, oh, we love troubles. You know, troubles <laughs> we thrive do, on you know, we that. We do yes. troubles every day. <laughs> yes. you know, please don't worry about me and troubles. This is what I'm used to. So, which also nonplussed him a little. Um, But it was intriguing because when he spoke about troubles, I went and looked at the death toll for that day and it was 14 uh, had been shot across the border fence that day. So, you know, one's definition of troubles is uh, maybe a moving target. Mm -hmm. Um, So after not getting into Gaza through areas, we then drove around in a little hired car through the cabbage patches along the the border trying to see what was going on on the other side. Also got stopped by the military, Mm -hmm. also got sent packing. So, yeah, attempts to get into Gaza were not successful. I spent a lot of time in the West Bank, spent a lot of time in East Jerusalem, and then interviews. And that's yes. really what makes my heart sore is I wonder where those people are now that I interviewed on both sides. Oh, that, you is, know, that is completely
12: I, chilling. I interviewed really Israelis. Is. I interv- mm.
13: interviewed Palestinians. I interviewed people in authority. I interviewed normal civilians. Mm. And I wonder where all of those people are now and what they're feeling now. So that's sore for me. That's a heart sore point for me.
12: I can absolutely imagine this. I, I mean, the book about these two characters, it's about Avid Dahan and Khalid Mansour, an Israeli and an Arab. It's about relationships, mm. friendships, which can actually never, ever happen. I think this was the most chilling paragraph that I found because sadly we, we are running out of, of time. We spoke about this earlier. The moral right of a belief that provided a freedom without responsibility. That was what Khalid feared more than anything else. The absence of accountability married to righteous certainty. It didn't matter what the cause was, good or bad, because absolute belief invariably led to a lack of introspective thought, the hesitancy that allowed one to reconsider.
13: I think it's the theme of the book for me. Yeah. Right in the beginning, in the first chapter, I write um, certainty was surely the poison of the world. Mm -hmm. If you thought you knew the outcome, why bother to undertake the journey? Conviction was the absence of thought. Yes. And that's really, I think, what the book is trying to achieve is to look at humanity rather than power, look at relationships rather than Mm -hmm. politics. Yes. um, And apply our human principles to the situation and people ask me now how am I navigating the horror that we are mm. in right now and my answer is I think we navigate it by going back to our basic human principles the freedoms that we hold dear mm. association expression movement access to health care access to education these are not politicized freedoms, these are basic human, human freedoms rights, that all of us whether I'm a Zionist, whether I'm a member of Hamas, whatever I am, surely I can ascribe to these basic principles, and then if you start applying those to the situation I think you start to find a route through, to navigate through all of this horror
12: Well one can only hope that there will be a solution, and um, Andrew thank you so much, The Bitterness of Olives by Andrew Brown is published by Caravan
0: Press, and I urge you to read it. Thank you, Meryl. And that brings us to the end of this week's book choice, proudly sponsored by Exclusive Books. If you missed any of the books we mentioned on today's show, you can download the podcast on fmr.co.za or on our FMR app. Thanks to Mzu and our reviewers, authors and interviewers and our sponsors, Exclusive Books. Until next time, happy reading. We're playing out with Oblivion by Zane Stapelberg and Kathleen Tagg.